your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to look at one of the great threats to humanity right now. That threat is called Russia, the Russian Federation, the uh, dictatorship of uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich uh, Putin. Okay, so what's going on that's new? What's different today? What's different today is the exposure of Russian mercenaries committing a massacre. And by the way, not in Ukraine. No, not in Belarus. Not anywhere in Russia. It's in Central Africa. Okay, why? We will get to that on the Michael Medved Show. We'll also be speaking with uh, Ilan Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C., who has written a powerful piece about the new Iron Curtain around Russia. What was the old Iron Curtain? That was uh, imposed originally by Stalin, called out by Winston Churchill, who gave a famous speech in Fulton, Missouri, where he said an Iron Curtain has descended upon Europe. Is that kind of Iron Curtain also mean a permanent divide between the U.S. and Russia? There's also a poll that shows that... Uh, Classifying Russia, 15% of Americans believe Russia is our ally. No, but they do. Are you one of those? Uh, 1-800-955-1776. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, gives another speech, another powerful speech, uh, this time at the United Nations and the United Nations and uh, various nations around the world talking about more serious sanctions against the Russians. And they have arrested uh, at least one participant. They think there will be more for that massacre, this not again in Ukraine, but in Sacramento, California. And uh, I hate to say it, but uh, this radio show was certainly right about the identity or the qualifications or some of the uh, descriptors of that particular accused criminal. Uh, 1-800-955-1776, again, our phone number. The, the situation right now with the exposure of uh, hostilities, of atrocities, of war crimes in Bucha, in, uh, in Ukraine, is becoming um, more and more serious and, in fact, dire. Uh, and partially because the Putin regime has completely denied it and in fact claimed that all those dead bodies that you've seen pictures of, all the pictures of, of unspeakable uh, torture and mutilation and uh, rape, uh, multiple rapes, all of the, that evidence that is accumulated regarding what happened in Bucha, they claim it's the Ukrainians who did it. And they did it to their fellow Ukrainians. And then they popped the uh, bodies out there to uh, try to make the Russians look bad after the Russians had left. But that none of this was uh, actually perpetrated uh, weeks ago be before the Russians left the, uh, uh, that area. Well, the New York Times, for one, and then there are satellite photos. None of that is true. The, the Russians also say, and this is, seems to me 
incredibly stupid that part of the reason they are sure that the Ukrainians decided to fake these war crimes or alleged war crimes in Bucha is because Bucha has nothing to do with butchery or the word butcher in the Ukrainian language or the Russian language. But when you pronounce it in English, you say Bucha, it sounds like butcher. And that, according to uh, Kremlin propaganda, is why this particular town was selected uh, for these these horrors. And uh, again, it's an interesting question. Why would it be selected for these horrors? We will maybe someday find out. But uh, the the situation in terms of the world outside reacting to what is going on, it's uh, it's serious. The French president, who, by the way, is facing his own re-election bid, uh, coming up on April 10th, that's five days from now, uh, President Macron, who is heavily favored to win another six-year term, but uh, they have a primary, the primary is coming up, and the question is which one of the more right-wing candidates is likely to clear the primary to oppose Macron. In any event, Macron said, today there are very clear signs of war crimes. That's what he told uh, France Radio. Uh, those who were responsible for those crimes will have to answer for them. And of course, it takes a while to try to bring uh, prosecution against Putin or against any of his aides who might be implicated directly in those war crimes. Uh, Russia promised to retaliate against the expulsions of diplomats by the European Union, by Germany, by France. They're reacting to the atrocities in Bucha by expelling diplomats. They say that, uh, describe the uh, atrocities in Bucha as, quote, fabricated pretexts for more sanctions. State television even claimed that Western operatives had chosen Bucha for their provocation because the town's name sounded like the English word butcher. Right, great. The Kremlin narrative is increasingly the only one being heard by regular Russians with independent news media shut down, access to Facebook and Instagram blocked, and a new censorship law punishing any deviation from that narrative with as much as 15 years in prison. In other words, if you speak about these atrocities being real and the killing of civilians and all of the various crimes that have been uh, really shown to uh, be perpetrated against innocent Ukrainians. If you say anything about that, you're looking at 15 years in prison, which I believe is still more than the average murderer gets in the United States. Uh, driving the point home, the Russian General Prosecutor's Office issued a statement on Monday, yesterday, indicating that anyone referring to the Bucha atrocities as Russia's doing risked immediate and severe prosecution. Uh, and people wonder why it is that um, Putin still has overwhelming approval ratings in Russia. Uh, this was uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky speaking at the United Nations and uh, about how Russia is acting no differently from other terrorists. Uh, this is clip 14.
So this is no different from other ter terrorists such as Daesh who occupied some territories. And here it is done by a, a member of the United Nations Security Council destroying internal uh, unity borders, countries, and uh, taking uh, the right of more than a dozen of uh, countries who are uh, self-determined and indeterminate. They pursue a consistent policy of destroying ethnic and religious diversity. Then inflame wars and deliberately lead them in uh, such a way that to kill as many uh, regular uh, civilians and cities to leave the country where they deploy their troops in ruins and filled with mass graves. You all see that. And they support hatred at the level of the state and seek to export it to other countries through their system of propaganda and political corruption. Okay, speaking of uh, threats, uh, there's also a threat from the sister of the dictator of uh, North Korea, a threat to use nuclear weapons to eliminate, wipe out South Korea and its military. We will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com <laughs> Michael Medved show, Ilan Berman, who's going to be joining us in uh, just a few minutes, is uh, somebody who's been on the show a lot. He is a terrific commentator uh, and uh, with a background, his family's background is from Russia. And he's senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, very much an American patriot. And he writes that in March of 1946, in a now famous speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill warned that an iron curtain was descending across Europe, behind which countries were subject to Moscow subjugation. Seventy-six years later, a similar barrier, this one informational in nature, is being erected by a criminal, Kremlin fearful that its citizens might learn the truth about the extent of its incompetence corruption and brutality at home and abroad in the years ahead the west will once again have to do something and just have to do everything it can to ensure that the ideas of the west the positions and principles are known to russia's captive population uh in other words you can ask the question how is it possible that Russians living in this world today, living on wide... It's difficult to block things on the Internet, and even the Chinese have found that. But, okay, people in Russia have to have seen some of these photographs, some of the video from Bucha. And with evidence of, of these terrible, terrible war crimes. So how do they live with themselves? You um, believe what your government tells you, that this is a fraud, that this is actually the handiwork of the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, again via translator, addresses the United Nations Security Council where uh, Russia has a veto. It's one of the five permanent members that has the veto power. 
Russia's veto um, on a true, true block to any kind of formal, useful resolution of what's going on by the United Nations. Uh, this is President Zelensky. Uh, uh, clip 13. We are dealing with a state that is turning the veto into the UN Security Council into the right to die. Uh, the, this undermines the whole architecture of uh, global security. It allows to, them to go unpunished. So they are destroying everything that they can. So if, we, if this continues, the, um, the countries will be rely only on the power of their own arms to ensure their security and not on international law, not rely on international institutions. The United Nations can be all simply closed. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to close the UN? Do you think that the time of international law is gone? If your answer is no, then you need to act immediately. Look, that's powerful. And uh, you know who makes a similar comment is is uh, a commentator who I have not particularly appreciated or backed in the past, but Ali Velchi, who is a commentator and reporter on uh, MSNBC. I used to be at some point with uh, CNN, I believe. Uh, Ali Velchi makes a powerful and unexstatement, uh, unexpected plea. This is clip 15. We are past the point of sanctions and strongly worded condemnations and the seizing of oligarchs' mega yachts. It's no longer sufficient as the evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity continue to grow. Premier Putin has no regard for life or humanity or even the rules of war. He's proven that time and time again, and he has also pursued the indiscriminate killing of civilians time and time again, twice before in Ukraine and in Chechnya. The global world order and potentially democracy's survival hang in the balance. If this isn't the kind of moment that the United Nations and NATO and the UN and the G20 and the Council of Europe and the G7 were made for, what is the point of these alliances if not to stop this? The world cannot sit by as Vladimir Putin continues this reign of terror. Uh, anybody have um, an opposing argument you want to offer? I think it's persuasive and powerful. There's also this, and it has not yet gotten the world's attention at all, and it's probably going to be the first you're hearing of it, but it's important that you get the message. That uh, French, American, and European officials have expressed serious concerns about allegations that hundreds of people were killed in a town in the West African nation of Mali by Malian soldiers accompanied by Russian mercenaries. You hear that? On a campaign to fight insurgents. Although the accounts are still unclear, human rights organizations, security analysts, and Malian civil society groups said that between 200 to 400 people had been massacred in the town Maura and that government troops and Russian fighters might have been responsible. What the hell are the Russian fighters doing in Mali? What what they're doing is, again, trying to expand the power and influence of and fear of, of Vladimir Putin. Human Rights Watch described it as the worst atrocity in Mali's decades-long armed conflict. I mean, think about what that would look like if it's really is 400 people 
slaughtered. Hundreds more were reportedly killed last month by Islamic insurgents. Oh, that's great. According to the group, Mali's armed forces have been battling Islamic extremists and other violent groups for the past decade in the Sahel region, an arid strip of land uh, just south of the Sahara Desert, where hundreds of civilians have been killed and hundreds of thousands more have been displaced. Uh, French uh, diplomatic and military sources say that about 1,000 Russian mercenaries are uh, now posted in Mali and playing an active role in the slaughter. Uh, this is that Wagner group that you've heard about that apparently he's sending to the Donbass. Maybe that's a break for Mali, but uh, not many breaks in Mali. The uh, Malian forces were supported by foreign soldiers who were identified by several sources as Russians. Malian forces and Russian mercenaries held the village under siege for four days. Several witnesses said that both Malian and foreign forces had executed many men. The bodies of some of them were burned, she added. This is an eyewitness. At the uh, time of the attack, jihadi fighters were present in the village, which is an area that is a stronghold of an affiliate of al-Qaeda known as the Masina Liberation Front. Do you ever question the idea of how grateful we should be that we live here in this country with uh, all of our problems and all of our challenges and all of our faults for God's sake, listen to this. Who who do you back? The the army, murderous army of your own dictatorial country, or Russian mercenaries, or jihadi fighters? And this is unreal. At, at least uh, 71 civilians were killed by Malian armed forces between December 2021 and last month. That's confirmed by the UN. Uh, meanwhile, what do we do? We'll talk about that with Ilan Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council about the new Iron Curtain coming up. joined by Ilan Berman. He is a senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. He's an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Russian Federation. He's consulted for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, as well as the U.S. Departments of State and Defense. Uh, Ilan, let me ask you first off, um, and this is on behalf of they, uh, there's a new YouGov uh, poll that shows that 15% of Americans believe that Russia is our ally. And uh, uh, 68% believe that Russia is an enemy. I'm shocked that it is that low. But for people who might have doubts about what's going on, the uh, Russian government apparently has put out information to their own people and to the world that those dead bodies, those horrible scenes that we've seen from Bucha are not the work of Russian troops. They are the work of uh, Ukrainians uh, trying to make Russians look bad. It's uh, basically a, a, a false flag operation by Ukrainians. Do you think there is any chance in the world that that is true? No, I, I, I actually think that um, 
if anything, what we've seen over the last five weeks in Ukraine is can be labeled uh, what some authors have called the first digital war, because it's the first war in which there's really such eyes on what's happening on the ground through uh, interception of telephone calls, uh, through um, digital surveillance, digital reconnaissance, that there's not really a lot of things that are happening in Ukraine um, that aren't being watched by international uh, intelligence agencies, that aren't being intercepted by Ukrainian intelligence. And so this is all uh, this is all propaganda on the part of the Russians, but it's also propaganda that is very easily debunked. And I think what we're going to see over the next few days is this rolling out of the evidentiary case that the Russian military actually did carry this out. This is not a false flag. The problem uh, with all of this is that when that evidence is rolled out, when the evidence is irrefutable from our perspective, it's still not going to penetrate this new digital curtain that Vladimir Putin is setting up. Because what we've seen over the last month has been this exodus of Western media outlets from uh, Russia itself, this clampdown on uh, the last embers of free press in, in Russia that remains in Russia. And so as a result, the story that we're seeing is diametrically opposite to the story that ordinary Russians are seeing. And that's frankly why you still see Vladimir Putin have very healthy popularity ratings, even though objectively the Russians should be voting with their feet and voting against him. Well, what, what's fascinating to me is I, growing up during the Cold War, I remember the images of people living behind the Iron Curtain, uh, living in Russia or other Warsaw Pact nations, and sort of listening on little illicit radios to uh, Radio Free Europe and to Radio Liberty. Now, what I found out reading your piece, which we've posted at our website at michaelmedved.com, uh, those organizations still exist, but they're pulling out of Russia. Uh, why? Well, so it's a fascinating story, and it has to do with uh, both the organizational pressure that the Kremlin is bringing to bear and also the fact that it's becoming increasingly unsafe for Western journalists uh, to report and to report independently from within Russia itself. And so that's why you see Radio Free Europe, which for years has been hounded by the Kremlin um, on all sorts of tax evasion charges, all sorts of, uh, you know, fines that have been levied against the organization for failing to register as a foreign agent under Russian law. Um, the, you know, the decision has been made by uh, the brass at RFERL that it's no longer safe. And so they're repositioning their bureaus. But, you know, this is actually an important point because, you know, like the old, like the old, uh, uh, anecdote says, right, the uh, danger is both crisis and opportunity. And so what you've seen is you've seen Europe, where there's a lot of Russian speakers, uh, begin to close the door on Russian propaganda. They've banned uh, RT, which used to be Russia Today. They've banned Sputnik. And so now there are millions of Russian speakers uh, on our side of this new Iron Curtain that, uh, frankly, aren't getting sort of the news that they need. So uh, Radio Free Europe is now pulling out of Russia, but it now has a larger constituency to message to in Russian because it can broadcast to Europe. What we don't have is we don't have a lot of penetration now into the Russian Federation itself. It's become a denied environment where it's really hard to get Western news, objective truth, you know, past the Russian government censors, past Russian disinformation. 
that's going to be a real problem moving forward. Okay, what about the prospect of actual war crimes prosecutions for some of what we've seen? Do you think that uh, uh, President Biden has basically used the term war criminal several times? There seems to be uh, an increasingly serious attempt to follow those that that course of prosecution is that realistic so the answer is yes and no i mean uh first of all it's necessary to unpack what's being said a little bit because it's very clear that what happened in bucha uh there is evidence of war crimes there's not evidence of genocide as the ukrainian government has been talking about uh genocide as an international legal standard is somewhat different it requires a more systematic intent we don't see that. What we do see is gross violations of the laws of war, the execution of civilians. These are things that if we get our hands on the responsible military commanders, uh, we could, you know, the international community could put them on trial and should put them on trial. That's different, though, from the idea, as President Biden has talked about, of uh, putting Vladimir Putin uh, on trial you know, in front of The Hague. Um, that's, uh, I think, a little bit of a bridge too far. It's also, candidly, very unhelpful rhetoric for a very simple reason. Vladimir Putin is still in power. He's actually, you know, by all uh, objective measures, polling very well among his electorate. And the idea that he could face an international tribunal of some sort in the future, and that's what the West is pressing for, does not give him an off-ramp to de-escalate in the current conflict. So my sense here is that we have to be very careful with the type of rhetoric that we use. And when it comes to de-escalating in the current conflict, uh, given th this evidence of I incredible cruelty and, and mass killing and irresponsibility, is a, um, a sort of a negotiated settlement, a dirty deal, as some people refer to it, is that still attractive to Ukrainians at all? Well, actually, I don't think so. I, I think it's actually very hard to conceive of a scenario now after Bucha where uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sits down with uh, directly with Vladimir Putin, um, and it's actually had the effect, and you can see it in the Ukrainian press, of hardening Ukrainian positions of a Ukraine that was, you know, becoming fatigued of war, that was beginning to talk about um, uh, the need for some sort of negotiated settlement in the aftermath of what we've seen over the last 48 hours, that rhetoric has really changed. There's been a hardening of the Ukrainian position. Uh, there is, uh, I think, right now, less room from com for compromise than there was before. Uh, can you uh, hang with us for a few more minutes, Ilan? Because I want to speak to you a little bit about this idea of Russian mercenaries increasingly uh, in the news, uh, and uh, basically the imputation right now from both French and European generally sources and American sources, that those Russian mercenaries, particularly with the notorious Wagner group, have uh, actually perpetrated a massacre in, in Africa, in central Mali. Uh, why is this going on? Why is there more talk of those mercenaries moving into the Ukraine struggle? Uh, are they going to be more effective in conducting this war than the conscript uh, soldiers who apparently were bearing the brunt of the battle before now? We're speaking about that and we'll get to it with Ilan Berman, who's Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, that coming up on the Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com. Ed Show back with Ilan Berman. Uh, you can read his uh, most recent piece about the new Iron Curtain that is falling not across all of Europe as the old Iron Curtain did, but uh, falling across Russia and the Russian federations. Uh, two big questions here, Ilan, and, and I know we have to let you go, but um, uh, question number one is... Vladimir Putin, one would think, has his hands full, more than his hands full, with Ukraine. What in the name of heaven are are Russian mercenaries doing massacring uh, people in in Mali, in Africa? What's, what is the story? Why would, first of all, who are these Russian mercenaries? Are they mostly Russian nationals? And... Why would they be paid by Russia to uh, participate in a civil war in Mali? Right. Well, I, I think that second question is sort of what will help us uh, frame this discussion, because what we've seen over the last seven years or so, ever since uh, Russia's decision to re-enter the Middle East, re-enter the Middle East-North Africa region by committing uh, troops to a military campaign in support of the Assad government in Syria, has been this growth of Russian influence and Russian military presence, not just in the Middle East, but also all over Africa. And the presence, though, uh, in places like Syria are conventional military forces. Uh, the presence in places like Mali and the Democratic Republic of Congo and others uh, tends to be paramilitary forces, essentially mercenaries, mercenaries that are Russian origin, but they have plausible deniability. They allow the Russians to uh, influence local politics, but keep their hands clean, so to speak. Right? It's not a military intervention, but it's influenced by proxy. Um, so this group, Wagner, is uh, a group that's run by an oligarch that is very close to Vladimir Putin. He was actually one of the principal oligarchs sanctioned in, in uh, uh, a couple of the most recent rounds of sanctions from the U.S. and the EU. Um, and it's clear that Wagner is playing a very big asymmetric presence. But things are changing, and, and this is, I think, really the big story here. Um, Russia, as the campaign in Ukraine has dragged on and on, uh, it's clear that, Russia's, uh, that the Kremlin's... Uh, the strategy really isn't going to plan. And so the Russians have begun asking other countries for reinforcements for their soldiers. They have expanded the springtime draft. Uh, the Russian news sources are reporting that something like almost 150,000 uh, soldiers will now be conscripted, and the Kremlin promises they won't be sent to Ukraine, but they've been sent to Ukraine in the past. Uh, Russia has appealed to Kazakhstan uh, for reinforcements, troop reinforcements. Uh, the Kazakhs have said no. They've appealed to the Chinese. The Chinese have said maybe. Uh, they've appealed to the Syrians. The Syrians are sending, uh, if you believe Damascus, are sending something like 20,000 troops. But increasingly, you're also beginning to see that the Russians are retracting their forces that are deployed abroad, both conventional forces 
and these irregular forces like Wagner. And they're pulling them back from places like the Middle East and Africa, and they're going to start throwing them into the Ukraine fight. So this is, I think, the broader context of what we're seeing. And, uh, okay, the the other question I, I wanted to put to you, and it's a big question that was posed by Ali Velshi on uh, MSNBC, which is... Uh, if if we do not use NATO and and uh, and the other organizations that are meant to establish some kind of order and security around the world, if we don't use those organizations and play a more active role in this context uh, and in this conflict, what what are those organizations for? How do you justify their continued existence? Uh, is this ultimately going to demand some more direct military involvement by the United States and our allies? Well, what's that old saying that uh, if you, uh, to obtain peace, you have to prepare for war? I think it's, it's telling that there has not, up until now, uh, been a continental war in Europe for three quarters of a century. And a lot of that can be credited to the fact that there was a credible deterrence alliance. Uh, an alliance where there was collective deterrence, that the members pledged to support each other in the event of conflict, and as a result, they looked uh, together uh, far more menacing than they did separately to potential aggressors like Russia. In fact, uh, if you look at the Ukraine conflict through that lens, what we've actually seen in recent years has been the decline of NATO deterrence, right? NATO is no longer, up until now, has no longer really been a credible threat. And as it has declined in relevance, people like Vladimir Putin have gotten ideas about testing the alliance, testing the resolve of Europe and the West in terms of defending each other, defending its constituent parts. So I'm not sure that NATO action is demanded, that NATO action is inevitable. But what we have here is we have a, uh, a, a sort of a crisis of confidence in terms of NATO. NATO has to demonstrate whether it's by reinforcing Ukraine, whether it's by carrying out new maneuvers, whether it's by uh, sort of uh, other diplomatic means that uh, really hammer home the point that the NATO alliance is united and it's ready to act if it's necessary to do so, to reestablish deterrence, right? That's the name of the game. Um, if NATO cannot reestablish deterrence, then dictators like Vladimir Putin will continue to press and to press their advantage because they simply don't think that the alliance will push back. Uh, that's um, uh, Ilan Berman. Uh, I, I wish you well with all of your work. He's vice president, senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council. And uh, I know that um, uh, you have to go, and I appreciate your joining us. We've posted your piece about the new Iron Curtain uh, at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, meanwhile, there is this statement by Ukraine's foreign minister about the, and you can listen beyond the accent, uh, saying that the atrocities in Bucha, just the tip of the iceberg. This is clip one. The horrors that we've seen in Bucha are just uh, a tip of the iceberg of all the crimes that have been committed by Russian army in the territory of Ukraine so far. And I can tell you without an exaggeration, but with great sorrow, that the situation in Mariupol is much worse. 
compared to what we've seen in Bucha and other cities, towns and villages nearby Kiev. Horrors of Bucha, Mariupol and other places demand serious G7 and EU sanctions. And uh, Ned Price, the State Department spokesman for the United States, uh, echoing to some extent the claims of the nation of Ukraine. This is clip two. There are reports and images of a nightmare litany of atrocities, including reports of landmines and booby traps left behind by Putin's forces to injure even more civilians and slow the stabilization and recovery of devastated communities after they failed in their objective and withdrew. Those responsible for atrocities must be held accountable, as must, as, uh, must those who ordered them. They cannot and will not act with impunity. Right now, at the request of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, the United States is supporting a multinational team of international prosecutors to the region to directly support the efforts of the Prosecutor General's War Crimes Unit to collect, preserve, and analyze evidence of atrocities with a view towards pursuing criminal accountability. Okay, uh, this is uh, all while the war is still going on with an uncertain result. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor, gives some word of their expectations. Uh, clip four. The Russians have now realized that the West will not break. At this juncture, we believe that Russia is revising its war aims. Russia is repositioning its forces to concentrate its offensive operations in eastern and parts of southern Ukraine, rather than target most of the territory. All indications are that Russia will seek to surround and overwhelm Ukrainian forces in eastern Ukraine. During this renewed ground offensive in eastern Ukraine, Mas Moscow will likely continue to launch air and missile strikes across the rest of the country to cause military and economic damage, and frankly, to cause terror, including against cities like Kyiv, Odessa, Kharkiv, and Lviv. Russia's goal in the end is to weaken Ukraine as much as possible. Uh, and what is the U.S. response? What is the appropriate response? What is the appropriate response to the ongoing surge of crime right here in the United States? And uh, speaking of crime, a resolution apparently now fairly clear regarding the uh, confirmation of the nomination to the United States Supreme Court of uh, Her Honor uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson. We'll bring you the latest on that and Republicans supporting her, three of them in the Senate. Uh, that and uh, much more, plus a prominent predictor gives a bold prediction of who the candidates will be in 2024. Neither of them, the people you think most likely. That and more in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth. <laughs>